Hello and welcome to episode 10 of Out with Susie Ruffle. This is the final episode of series one and I'm delighted you've joined me today. I've been really blown away by how many of you have got in touch over the last 10 weeks to let me know that you've enjoyed the podcast. I really wanted to create something hopeful and maybe inspiring in some ways, not about me, about the guests, to be clear. And I really hope that I've done that. I'm excited to make series two and um, there's going to be lots more of Out With Susie Ruffle to come. Today's episode is with the marvellous Joe Lysett, who is a brilliant stand-up comedian and broadcaster. He's also a dear friend of mine. As always, before we get to that chat, I have the pleasure of sharing some listener correspondence. Thank you so much to anyone that's written in. I've loved receiving the letters. I say letters, they're definitely emails. And if you'd like to get in touch, please do. The email is hello at outwithsusieruffle.com. We need lots more stories for series two. I also want to say a quick thank you to anyone that's rated or reviewed or sent tweets or sent messages on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, the whole shebang. I'm just delighted that people have enjoyed this podcast so much. And thank you. Okay, first story for today. Hi Susie, thank you for your podcast. I'm a gardener and I've been listening to your podcast whilst working. Listening to all those coming out stories have made me think about my life and my coming out. I'm a Sikh woman and I was born in a small town of Punjab state in India. I have a very traditional family, but growing up I remember being obsessed with Bollywood actresses. I always wanted to dress like a Bollywood actor. I used to wear baseball caps backwards, trying to fit in with the boys, spend all my days playing cricket with the boys. My father hated the fact I was a tomboy and used to buy me traditional girly dresses. But to his annoyance, I would either cut them up or find a way to get rid of them. As a teenager, I always felt intense feelings or I can't live without feelings for my female best friends or a PE teacher or the captain of the volleyball team. I never understood why I felt that way and why I couldn't bring myself to dream of being married to a man or having a lavish arranged marriage. I felt different in my mind, in my soul just not quite fitting into the box of a nice Indian Sikh girl. When I turned 16 I managed to convince my mother to let me come to the UK to study. I just turned 17 when I arrived in the UK. I was living with my brother and his family who were very strict and I felt more caged and unhappy than before. The constant reminder that my family wanted me to find a suitable husband was always there. However, it all changed the day I somehow stumbled on the L word. Seeing two women kissing, it was magical. It lit a fire in my soul. It was also the first time I realised that lesbians existed. There was this whole new world and I had no idea it was possible. My mind, body and soul felt like it was all blown away and I finally felt like me. I decided I had to break free from my traditional life and live a life where I can be my true self and be free to love who I choose. When I turned 21 in the year 2006, I joined the British Army. I didn't tell my family because I was worried about what they'd say or what they'd do to me. Day one of my basic training should have been the proudest day of my life. But I found out that my brother had somehow managed to get into my emails and told my sister that I had been emailing and chatting up girls. They both told me I was dead to them and that I had brought shame onto their families. They stopped talking to me and I had to beg them not to say anything to my mother in India. I was heartbroken and I felt lost. However, I made some amazing friends in the army who loved me and helped me through these rough times. I still remember the day I decided to come out to my mum. I came back from an optional tour in Iraq in 2008. 
I was dealing with quite a lot of emotions because of the optional tour. I also hated myself for lying to my mother and for hiding myself. I've never felt ashamed of being a gay woman, but hiding it made me feel like I was doing something terrible that I had to hide. So the day I decided to tell her who the real me was, was the day I truly felt free. My mother was visiting my brother and I went to see her. I took her for a walk in the park and she asked me why I was looking so worried. I asked her to promise me that she would never stop talking to me if I told her something about me that she might not like. When she made the promise, I sat down on the park bench and tried my hardest to find the words to explain to this Punjabi-speaking woman who had never seen or heard about lesbians that her daughter is a lesbian. Finally, I did find the words, and I've never looked back since. I'm married to the most gorgeous, kindest, hippiest woman, and we have a four-year-old son. I couldn't be prouder that I was able to come out and break the traditional mould. That's from Raj. I think you should be enormously proud of yourself. And you end the email by saying that you're hoping that my tour show in Reading happens in September. Um, I really hope it does, fingers crossed. Uh, but if it doesn't happen, it will be rescheduled. And um, when you come to the show, uh, please wait for me afterwards because I would love to meet you. Thank you so much for sharing your story with me and with all the listeners. Okay, on to the next email. Hi, Susie. I'm a 48-year-old gay man and I love your podcast. I wanted to write to say thank you so much for doing it. You've reminded me how weird being gay was when I was much younger and how it was a real struggle. I don't think I'm the sort of person to dwell on the difficult or stressful things in life, but the conversations that you're having are instilling in me a sense that I've done well somehow or managed to navigate being gay despite the myriad of stresses for gay people growing up. So thank you very much. Being gay in the early 90s was scary because we had been subject to the absolutely terrifying adverts about the danger of AIDS. It was also the preface years to Section 28, so there was a real sense that it was dangerous for us to be gay. I still perhaps perversely wish that I could have been on the scene in the 70s, notwithstanding the more intense horrors of discrimination that the older generation faced, but there seemed to me, naively, to be an element of joy attached to sex prior to AIDS. We had to learn that joy and in doing so repress our acute anxiety that having the sex that we wanted or the condom splitting might lead to a very serious illness and quite possibly death, which all seemed normal at the time. But I have a kind of repressed anger about it. I remember in my 30s I had my first HIV test and thankfully it was negative, but also awfully in the same week of my results my two exes told me they'd had tests and they were positive. In those days, that was a very big thing, and it meant that they might die. It was very emotional and horrible thing to have to think about. I love them both very much, and I'm thankful to say they're both fine and healthy and benefiting from pharmaceuticals that were developed to fight it. But at the same time, my generation thought we were fortunate. Our gay male friends in the generation above, now in their 60s and 70s, have told us they lost almost all of their gay friends at the same age to AIDS. Now in present life, I'm the co-chair of a support network for the LGBTQ plus employees at the place where I work. We look at supportive measures to make sure the LGBTQ plus employees know that it's okay to be gay, bi, trans or queer at work. And not only we support that, that we celebrate it. We want people to bring their whole selves to work, to feel utterly comfortable in their skin at work and have access to all the opportunities that everyone else has. This makes me so happy. I started work as a trainee lawyer in a big office in the city 
and in the whole office, 2,000 people in London, apparently no one was gay. I had to pretend to have girlfriends. Optimism prevails in me. I frequently forget that incidents of discrimination and violence due to my gayness occurred. Your podcast is an important part of us continuing the communication that our lives are normal, to continue the reassurance that the population at large, that we are all human, no different in our essence to anyone else. So many straight and otherwise historically conventional people are supporters of our lives, but we have to continue to remind everyone that we're here. The next part of the struggle will be to help our siblings living in repressed countries to achieve acceptance. How glad we might be not to be gay growing up in Uganda or Singapore or anyone else that punishes us for being LGBTQ+. I'm not sure how we do that, but I'm sure it will come if we continue to remind people in the world that we're here. You're absolutely right, Jamie, and thank you so much for saying the kind things. Um, It made me quite tearful how much it means to you, and I really appreciate that. That was from Jamie. He also suggests that um, I get RuPaul on the show. Guys, I would absolutely love to get RuPaul on the show. So if any friends of Ru are listening, please know that he is very, very welcome indeed. Okay, I thought seeing as it's the last episode, I would share one more story. Dear Susie, I'm really loving listening to your podcast during lockdown in Zimbabwe. It reminds me how vital it is that we share our LGBTQ plus stories on a public platform. Having grown up where both law and culture condemned homosexuality, I'm not sure I would have ever found the courage to come out, maybe even to myself, if I hadn't had access to blogs and YouTube channels broadcasting how wonderful and normal everyday life out of the closet can be. I was lucky enough to live and study in the UK after school, which provided a safe environment for me to explore and accept my sexuality. But whenever I went back to Zimbabwe, I felt I was taking a few steps back into the closet. It got to the point where I was out and pretty comfortable in the UK, but still hadn't told my parents or friends back home, and I really began to worry that someone else would tell my parents before I could. I made a resolution to tell them during a visit home, but after weeks of finding excuses of now's not the right time, I reached my last day in Zimbabwe. I had a late night flight back to the UK and I was sitting in the airport in Harar with my parents, who clearly just wanted to go home to bed. But I kept stalling and trying to prolong the conversation. Finally, knowing I needed to go through security, I decided it was now or never. I managed to splutter out some words. I need to tell you something. I don't want you to find out from someone else. So just so you know, I didn't know how to tell you, but I think you should know that last year I had a girlfriend. I realise now I couldn't quite say the words I'm gay because it was too scary to take that complete ownership of my identity at that point. And I do wish I'd found a better time and place to do it. Firstly, because it was not fun sitting on a plane in transit for the next 24 hours with no one to talk to. But mainly because I didn't give my parents time to process the information or ask me questions before I ran off to catch my flight home. Being completely out and proud in Zimbabwe is still tricky. I'm very lucky that my family have accepted me and welcomed my girlfriend when she's visited a couple of times. I know that for so many others living in this country and around the world, it seems impossible to even think about coming out. I hope for them, your podcast and others like it will provide a place of solace and a sense of community, which is just so important when you're feeling alone and closeted. Thank you for a great show. And that's from Philippa. Um, Philippa, thank you so much for writing in. I have been so humbled by the amount of people that have got in touch to say the podcast is 
it's helping them find a sense of community and and what you've said it's exactly what I tried to create so I'm, I'm really chuffed about that and I hope that the podcast is giving people um, a little bit of hope okay on to today's interview I mentioned at the top of the show it's with the amazing Joe Lysett I love him to bits let's listen to that conversation now I am very excited for my guest today. It is the fabulous Joe Lysett. Now, you might know him from Live at the Apollo, the Royal Variety Performance, Michael McIntyre's Big Show, Taskmaster, the Great British Sewing Bee, or his new show, which I absolutely love, Joe Lysett's Got Your Back. He is adored by fans and critics alike. Indeed, they have said, what a joy it is to spend an hour with Joe Lysett. Excellent routines. Greatly enriched by Lysett's manner, he is effortlessly funny. An hour in his company is an absolute pleasure. This show is a roaring success. Joe Lysett, welcome to the show. Bloody hell. That's a lot, isn't it? Well, it's impressive, isn't it? It's, yeah, I mean, it's very nice, but gosh, I mean, I don't, I feel like I've got a big head already. That's good. This show, I sort of build you up and then I'm going to drag you down. No, I'm not. Uh... (laughs) Please do. I need dragging down. No, you don't. You don't. You need celebrating. And that is what this show is all about. So that's how sort of others might describe you as sort of a broadcaster, Mm. a comic, a presenter. How would you describe yourself? Exactly the same. An hour in my company is wonderful. (laughs) And people should be grateful to, to spend and any time And that's exactly with what they've got now. So that's and that brilliant. Is exactly, yes, that's true. A nice hour with me. Um, no, I think there's some um, very kind hyperbole in those reviews and whatever. I'm very fortunate that people are very nice about me. I don't seem to get many trolls. You know, I get a fair amount. Anyone that's in the public eye does. But compared to any woman ever, uh, <laughs> and particularly someone in the LGBTQ plus community, I, I get a pretty smooth ride, really, compared to a lot of people. So yeah, people are very nice about me. It's interesting, because I have been seeing a therapist, because I was feeling an- anxious about my workload, and my schedule. And the therapist essentially dumped me because she couldn't work around my schedule and workload. <laughs> so there's a, there's a beautiful irony to that. But she unraveled quite an interesting thing that is um, basically she thinks that I appease people. I think comics do this anyway a lot, that I spend a lot of time appeasing people and trying to make people comfortable in my presence and to essentially like me, and that that is incredibly draining and quite a um, uh, quite an exhaustive thing to, to do, exhausting thing to do. And so um, I'm making it a bit of a goal to stop being so British and polite and actually say what I think in more scenarios. I mean, I think it's still super important to be nice and polite and uh, patient, but there are times when actually that takes more than it should. And sometimes just being honest and saying, do you know what, I'm sorry, I can't do that. Yeah, or I don't want Thanks to do Thanks very much. It. I don't want to do that, yeah. I don't want to do that. Why would I do that? I don't like the sound of it. Um, and being a bit more, being a bit more of a selfish dickhead I mean I am incredibly selfish I'm just very good at um I think it it is a comics mindset that we our job is to make people fall in love with us like that Mm -hmm. you know as quickly as possible you want an audience to be like I love this guy I love everything about him I can't wait to hear what he has to say next that's our kind of job essentially well I think that's a massive thing when you first sort of start out as a stand-up before you've got material you need to have some charm 
Yeah. Before, because it takes a while, doesn't it, to learn to write, to learn how to, to learn what it is that you do funny well. Yeah, totally. And, and we spend a while going, am I the kind of comic that does this sort of thing? Do I do stories? Do I make up things? Do I improvise lots? Do I chat to the audience lots? But certainly for people that I love as, as stand-ups, the thing that they've got more than anything is charisma. Yeah. Well, I, I remember Gary Delaney saying to me early on that comics are come from sort of two... Uh, schools I suppose there's the brilliant writers and then there's the brilliant performers and the brilliant writers have a lot of catching up to do because actually a brilliant performer can sell shit and mm. I know I know I've definitely been guilty of that oh, in the past me too don't definitely, you worry definitely flogged some <laughs> third-rate gags out there but if you can but sell you did it, it with such panache well that's it like if you can sort of do a little twinkle in the eye you can get away with and we all know comics are very good at that who you kind of go they've not said anything but it's funny and actually the, mm. the thing that made me realize that most potently was I saw a comic called George Cottier. I used to gig with him quite a lot. He doesn't, I don't think he does stand up anymore. He's a mad guy. He's from Liverpool. And he was around when I was starting out about 13 or so years ago. And he did a lot of concept stuff. So he had about four different acts, if I remember, and they were all wild and totally different. But one of them was a 10 minute set where he just made the noises of a joke being told, but didn't say any words. And it was so brilliantly done. I can't just rhythm. It was just rhythm. And it was so funny because it was sort of, uh, this is a terrible version of it, but he'd sort of go, and you found it so funny because you recognized the rhythm of what was happening. And so much, I think, of a joke is being fed that this is the punchline now. I'm about to deliver something funny and I expect a response from you rather than necessarily the thing that you've said being funny. If you can pair those two things together, so if you can get the uh, the funny delivery and that feeling that a joke is coming and then actually have an amazing joke, that's the sweet spot, obviously. But to, be, to watch a, a, an act essentially say, uh, well, definitely say nothing and still make you laugh as if you've watched somebody say something really profound was really, really powerful, actually. I found that really interesting. That is really interesting. So you've been a stand-up, you know, I, I was trying to work out how long I've known you. And I think it must be coming up to about eight years when yeah, we sort I of don't met. Know. I don't, I, there's so many people I don't know where I first met them in comedy. I couldn't yeah, tell you where here. I first met Josh Widdicombe. I can't tell you where I first met any, any of these wankers. I remember having a very, I remember feeling like I got to know you a little bit because we were both early for a gig and it was a gig on Valentine's Day. Oh, where and was it this? And it was in a nice West End theatre, maybe the Duchess or something like that. Oh, yeah. And it was... Years ago, this ring and I only well. I have a distinct memory of it because I've got a photo that I took of us that night. Oh, lovely! And so I'm like, oh yes, that was. And I think we were both early, so we sat upstairs in the dressing room and had a chit chat. Okay, yeah, that but was that, probably in the golden be... era where um, I stand up. I don't know if you, how you're finding it, but I find now that um, now that people know a little bit who I am and also I'm doing touring and whatever rather than just doing gigs club gigs there was this golden period where I was just doing club gigs and maybe doing two or three a night in London you can get away with that on, on a Friday night and you just you know you have your first pint maybe after the first show and by the yes. third show you're trashed you're probably <laughs> 
drunker <laughs> than the audience are. And then you go out in London afterwards and it's all carefree and you're hitting the pubs and all that. Now it's like you get to the venue three hours before, you've, you panic for the whole time. Then the first section goes okay, so you sort of allow yourself to have a little beer. Then you finish the show and you're full of adrenaline, but you have to get in the car and go drive three hours home. And it's all like serious and like a job now. Whereas there was this period when... I was definitely doing a lot of gigs in London like that, where you like you're doing big theatres for charity things, and it felt so exciting, and there was a lot of fun being had. And I feel like there was also a stage for me, certainly, where I, I mean, I'm not a famous person at the moment, but some people might know who I am now. But there's also a stage where people haven't got a clue if you're going to be any good. Yeah, and, and then, then you when, are quite good. Yeah, and you surprise them. I love that yeah. about like watching. I, I love being in clubs and watching club comics go out that the audience have no idea about, and I know their act and I know how amazing they are. Yes, I love that moment where they click and they go, "Wow!" and they then they're so excited and they feel like they've found, they've discovered somebody. Absolutely, I love it. I wanted to discover you actually, Joe. I want to go back a little bit because I know the comedian version of you, and I know sort of who you are now as a as a guy in his sort of early 30s. But you were born in Birmingham, even though you don't sound like it. Yeah. On, on the same, uh, got the same birthday as my brother, if you're interested. Have I? I found out. Yes. Because oh. I've been researching you. So oh God. when people do this show, I research them, of course. And it's strange when there's someone that's quite a good friend. Yeah. Because just sort of reading articles about you from like 2009, <laughs> going, oh, right, that's what he felt like then. But the thing is with you, because you absolutely love playing silly buggers yeah there was one interview that said joe lysett wants to kill all dolphins yeah and you know you're i don't know how much stuff to believe no um and even with your wikipedia page <laughs> i thought i could absolutely see joe spending an afternoon with a glass of rosé changing all of this yeah for a laugh yeah i've I, i've never changed my own wikipedia page but other people have done it for me and put in mad stuff that i haven't got rid of so there's stuff in there last time I checked there was something to do with me playing a puppet in two pints of lager and a packet of Chris I don't know if that's still there that's no longer there but it did tell me that you you grew up in Birmingham and I know that much is true that is true yes that's true so what sort of child were you very sweet and well behaved but mad I definitely did mad things one of the things I used to do was used to imagine I loved classical music I was um I still do there was a a magazine called The Music Box that came out, I think, every month. And it came with a, a compact disc for um, people who are familiar with the past. And on there, there would be a story about Sarah and Jamie, who were two kids that time traveled, and they would go to different periods of time. And each episode focused on a different composer. So there'd be the first episode was about Holtz, the planets. So they would, they were in space, venturing around space, and they would meet Venus and Mercury and Mars and all of those characters. And there was this classical music. And I just got so obsessed with classical music and thought it was so wonderful that um, I used to imagine that the plants in the garden were various sections of the orchestra. And I would sing classical music like da 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 and and conduct the flowers as if they were my orchestra to the point where neighbors after a while would go shut up over the fence because I would do it for hours and really annoying. And how old were you at this point? Oh, I don't know, twenty seven. No, little little joke there, little pullback and reveal. No, that um when when was I? Probably before ten, but I couldn't tell you to be honest. But I remember doing that quite a lot. Were you always funny? Did you always try and make people laugh? I didn't think I was. 
Um, I'm not sure at a younger age whether I was, but I definitely uh, obviously was trying to be funny in secondary school because I was nominated in my yearbook as the funniest male or funniest student, which surprised me when I found the yearbook because I don't remember actively making an effort to be funny and I don't remember thinking, oh, people thought I was funny. I know at university, particularly going to parties, I always really tried to be the funny one at the party. I always like wanted to be the most sort of acerbic or uh, wittier party and made a lot of effort there, which all dissipated the minute I started doing stand-up because then I had an outlet for it. But so there's obviously been a funny streak in me, a desire to generate a laugh, but I can't really pinpoint when it started, but it's definitely been present most of my life. And did you feel like you were different to some of the other children at school yeah like I'm talking about sort of before say before secondary school age did you feel were you an outsider yeah I never felt like I was part of the clique or the cool gang and I think part of that was I live I lived in a place called Hall Green which is a lovely residential area and is you know very gentle and quiet but there's no I was quite far from everyone there I wasn't most of my schoolmates were in other areas that seemed so much cooler and I've moved to one of those areas which is the house prices are a lot less than Hall Green but I just wanted to be in that area that I thought was cool when I was a kid and I do think it is really cool where I live um but it's definitely a bit more edgy and there's you know there's more crime on the streets and more drugs and um I definitely felt like all the fun stuff was happening there and I was trapped on MSN Messenger at home not really being part of the all the excitement and all the fun. That's interesting you say about the fun happening somewhere else because that's exactly what Tom Allen said when I chatted to him, that he always felt like the fun was just beyond his grasp, Mm. sort of just happening just out of his reach. Yes, yeah, like if I only knew how, you know, if I only got on that hour bus journey to go and see people, I would be part of the fun, but I couldn't be bothered and I didn't have the money. What were you like as a teenager? Because I read in an article that you said that you... You wanted to stay a little boy. Yeah. You said that you didn't, that you weren't that keen on becoming a sort of an adolescent. You liked being a little boy. Yeah, well, uh, I, I often use the word about myself. I'm recalcitrant, which... Um, I don't know what that means, but I love the sound of it. It's a lovely word, isn't it? It means I don't like authority. I don't like being told what to do. And um, I, I'm this weird mix of I'm, I play by the rules and I'm I'm not a rule breaker and I've been very well brought up and I'm polite and all the things I was talking about before. Oh, yes, I've met your mum and dad. You were very well brought up. I mean, they're the, 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 the loveliest people in the world. They're divine. They're such nice people. They're so nice. And... So I was so well brought up and really made to think about the effects that I have on other people and my actions and whatever. So I'm this weird sort of mix because at school, I respect I respected the teachers to a degree. And there were certain teachers I obviously respected more than others. But there was definitely an underlying thing of who the fuck are you to tell me to, <laughs> to do whatever it is? Like, what do you fucking know? I definitely have that sort of um, real rebellious streak in me that basically questions like why who's given you the authority and why are you using it like this why are you wielding it like this and I, I think that was exacerbated by just a couple of moments which I imagine all children have and all teachers have where a teacher just sort of got it wrong slightly and punished me for something I hadn't done wrong or whatever and suddenly that created in me this sort of sense of these people don't know what they're doing 
you know <laughs> we, we trust these people and I but then I never broke the rules I only ever had one detention and I felt so bad about it afterwards um, oh, really and that I'm I think it's because my friend Angela pushed me into being naughty because she was naughty and she made me naughty it definitely wasn't anything to do with me I definitely didn't have definitely any not. any control of my own actions <laughs> so Whilst I, you know, quietly didn't respect the teachers, I, <laughs> and I did. That, that's not quite right because I do respect them, and I have sort of met up with some of them since leaving school, and I adore them, and they're obviously so important and formative to um to a young person. But um, once I left school, I went to university because that was the thing to do. You know, it would would have been a wild deviation to not go to university, but I definitely was really hungry to get out of being told what to do and being instructed and I suppose that's what I mean about being a little boy in that I loved that um play and just pissing about and not and not having anything serious or adult to do I found all of that a bit um it's too serious I suppose and and I didn't want to live a serious life didn't want to be in a gray suit in an office feeling sad and when you say sort of adult life and sort of trying to be away from that do you feel like you realizing that you maybe weren't straight or having feelings around your sexuality was that linked within that oh almost definitely Mm. this is one thing that I forget now that I'm an adult and it seems like things are getting a lot better well it felt like in my early adulthood that the uh, response and the celebration to LGBT people was massive. And there was this whole like wave of exciting culture emerging. And I do feel like we're kind of going back the other way a little bit and the knives are out for the community and a few places that, that weren't before. But I forget that when I was at school, there's loads of people that are now out, I went to school with who I would never have expected to be gay because everyone just pretended they weren't because that just wasn't the done thing I think there was maybe one person who was out whilst we're at school I'd be surprised actually I can't even remember I'm sure some people did come out but it was sort of seen as weird it's like oh some little puff over there like it didn't it felt like um you know the attitude was and it wasn't that long ago was definitely that's not cool that's weird nowhere near I feel like the celebration that I think is given to kids in that community these days I mean there's a lot of bullying that goes on I'm sure but yeah it definitely feels better feels like we've progressed sure. and so I do think I think part of me was like going oh none of these people really get me mm-hmm. because if I was to really be true to myself then they'd bully me and um I, I was very very embarrassed by it very very frightened by it, it had a, made me feel awful I had a horrible like knot in my stomach thinking about it and got the iron taste in the mouth um oh yeah I remember that but what's really sort of shocked me is finding out and because I'm not I, I know a few people from school but not that many I'm finding out that like oh so and so's gay now and there was one I was so surprised by because they had a straight partner for ages and then it, only in the last couple of years this person who went to school has come out as uh, I think as gay and I'm certain that a big part of that is to do with the fact that we weren't we had no role models like we had role models on telly and I loved Will mm-hmm. and Grace but it was like oh yeah you know, me too I loved Will and Grace loved Will and Grace but there was no one no teachers were like openly gay I don't think like there was no no one was talking about it no one was encouraging it by any means and so it was this sort of dark kind of oh you're going to end up in some sort of horrid culture so and I, I sort of feel like that's no one's fault. You know, it's not, I don't, I don't, I don't harbour any anger about that. But the more I see fellow schoolmates, classmates coming out, 
who must have gone through similar things and hidden it and whatever I have such because I was quite sort of gregarious and quite kind of loud so I think most most people weren't surprised yeah I was gonna say did people did you get any any shit from people were you sort of picked on at all because of you know being yeah, a bit different so. or I think so I don't remember there being any particular homophobia but there might have been I, no, nothing that sort of stuck stayed with me there, there was definitely like um I think people found me annoying and that's probably because I was annoying like that's <laughs> I, I, I was loud and brash and wanted to show off and oh me too I showed off so much I must have been exhausting yeah because I, I, I was constantly like look at this thing I can do it. let's do this thing let's do that let's paint <laughs> yeah. a thing let's do this let's do handstands yeah and I think for me a lot of the time it was deflection of my sexuality yeah sort of being a big mad character yeah well, that's so common, isn't it, in in our community? Like, there's, I think there's a reason why people are drawn to the the performing arts and the arts in general, because they provide such solace. But actually, I'm so glad that that kind of is part of what motivates me, because it it's given me such a lovely life thus far. I've I've been very fortunate to be able to make things and show off for a living. It's and lovely. I don't think I think if I hadn't got that sort of repressed side of me that needed to come out somewhere I'm not sure I think you know I'd probably be a lawyer somewhere well I I feel the same I think it's sort of quite interesting that you say that because I I've often thought you know because acting and doing like amdram and little plays and being parts of sort of these little drama societies that I was as a teenager it was a way of sort of pretending Mm. which I constantly wanted to do pretending to be something else to do something else to be someone else yes and um I find it quite interesting now because I don't get an awful lot of homophobia online, but, you know, when I do a bigger, you know, a bigger TV show like a Jonathan Ross or a Last Leg or a Live at the Apollo, I'll always get a few. And I'm sorry to say it is always men, Mm. but say like, oh, I wonder how long until she mentions she's a lesbian. Yeah. And it's only been recently that I've thought, oh, if I wasn't a lesbian, I wouldn't be doing this. Yeah. Yeah. It's so hand (laughs) in hand. Yeah. Like, not that all that I talk about on stage is being gay. It's it's a part of who I am. And I mention my same-sex partner. I know. Up. But, oh. I mean, you say cliche. I say career. And... <laughs> Touche. I feel I feel very seen myself there. <laughs> but I, I, I want to always appeal to a straight audience as well, of course. But I feel like I spent so much time and so much effort hiding that part of myself. But yeah. now that I'm okay with it, I'm like, yeah, I probably will mention that I'm gay within about three or four minutes. I hope that's cool with you, babe. Cheers. Bye. Yeah. Yeah. But also I have toyed with this myself in terms of, oh, should I really be going on about it that much? Whatever. And actually there was one routine in a show that I did, which was about a guy that was, he wasn't homophobic, but he was very alpha. And he was mm-hmm. a, a bit of a, I thought he was a bit of a bully really. And he, and he, he didn't, he didn't like me and he didn't like the way I operated on this lad's holiday that we were on. And I found a way of kind of undermining him and, and actually underneath all brash alpha maleness, as far as, far as my experience has told me is, um, vulnerability and Mm -hmm. insecurity and it didn't take me long to find it and I absolutely used it to my advantage and I wrote this routine about him and actually he was a quite apologetic and sent me a message when he found out that the routine existed and I obviously didn't name him in the routine so that he wouldn't no one would be able to but you um, did tweet that picture of him didn't you 
I tweeted the picture in his full that address. That is a joke before anyone gets upset. That is a joke. It, it's a joke, guys. <laughs> uh, it wasn't a picture. It was a paint, a very accurate painting. <laughs> um, but so I, I, I really thought about, because I overthink these things, but I think that's good in this instance. I, did, I really thought, like, should I? Because he knew about the routine and I think he was slightly mortified by it. Uh, I thought, like, you know, should I protect him? And I protected him in the sense that I didn't name him or make him identifiable. But I thought, no, actually, because my responsibility is to speak to the people who are like me, who don't necessarily have the voice to speak like me in terms of the the profile or the platform, mm-hmm. I suppose. And actually, there's so many alpha males out there and they they get a pretty easy ride of it. And I felt like it was a responsibility to child me to... Shy, the shy version of me that would never do stand-up, the uh, awkward version of me, the version of me that works in an office who has to sit next to a prick like him. And it's my responsibility to make them silly and make them look like what they are because a lot of people can't do that and they are looking for someone to do it for them. And so I, I, I absolutely make peace with the fact that I sometimes have to go hard against somebody because it's bigger than that one individual. I'll never try and throw somebody under the bus. You know, I'm, I'm always aware that uh, there's a responsibility to not be um, cruel. But if someone's been a dickhead, I'm going to call them a dickhead. And I think that that will have more impact than you know. You know, people oh, do yeah, see right. that and people do appreciate that. So I had the um, the absolute pleasure of supporting you on your last tour, doing uh, sort of a good few of the dates on the last tour. And we had a really yeah. great time together. But there was a brilliant section of that show, first of all, s- such a funny, funny tour. And if you haven't seen Joe live, you must go because he's, he's just brilliant. Um, but there was a part of it, there was a section in the show where you spoke specifically about the LGBTQ plus community yeah. and about sort of the terminology because you describe yourself as pansexual, don't you? Yeah, I do. Is that I right? Mean, I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I describe myself as pan and bi, basically. Sure. Pan, pan is a sort of intellectual version of what I believe I am. Um, Could you explain that? Because I know that a lot of the listeners won't necessarily be part of the queer community. Yeah. Um, how, how would you describe... What? I know, I know, I know. We're reaching what? further afield. There are there are heteros listening to this. Yeah, we've got some oh, allies. Oh God, I'm going to vomit. Um, There's one that's uh, in uh, the last stages of pregnancy that's listening to it every week God, a breeder, as the weeks go a by. Breeder. Oh, I know, I know. No. <laughs> the worst kind. <laughs> Um, so how would you... So yes, pansexuality, uh, yes, in please. a nutshell, is a form of bisexuality. So bisexual, um, uh, bi means two. So uh, that essentially means that you're attracted to both genders, uh, male and female. Now, pan means all. So that means you're sexually attracted to all th- things or you're open to being sexually attracted to all genders and whatever. And certain pansexuals identify as pansexual because they feel that gender is totally a construct there isn't male or female we're all just on some spectrum and it does away with gender i'm not quite as far as that i think that gender is a thing i'm not convinced that it's entirely male and female because there are these uh, individuals that sort of aren't easily identifiable as male or female um, in a scientific sense and so it's less to do with gender particularly it's literally to do with the semantics of the word bisexuals and and all of the semantics of homosexual heterosexual it puts all of the onus on 
the gender of a person and and that you're only attracted to them because they are if you're hetero and you're a woman they're, they're male you know it's it's just to do with their maleness and actually I think sexuality is so brilliantly diverse and fascinating. There's so many parts of it where you're like, oh, why do I like that? And ooh, suddenly I'm, I'm attracted to them and I wasn't before. And th- there's so much magic that goes on when you, in terms of sexual attraction that I feel like using words that just sort of diminish it to gender doesn't give it the full beauty and diversity that it that it is and that it deserves to be talked about. So it is an intellectual way of looking at it. It's not something that I kind of uh, force on other people necessarily or try not to. It is literally just a way of saying, I think I'm attracted to people sometimes because of their gender, but also going on with that is their body shape and the way mm-hmm. they talk to me and the the way that the light glistens off their biceps or whatever it is. <laughs> it's to do with a, 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 all sorts of things that I can't fathom. And so... Yes, I'm attracted to both men and women, but it's not just because they're men and women. It's to do with all sorts of other things. So it's um, it's not something I'm going to, you know, die on a hill about. It's not something that I spend that much time thinking about. But if I'm asked and I can be bothered to explain it, I, I am <laughs> pansexual. That is how I identify. Well, thank you for being bothered to explain You're it welcome. To You're welcome. Right now. So did you, I fe- I, I feel like you've, probably because of finding these new words that describe who you are now. Have you had a couple of different comings out? Were you? Did you think you were gay for a bit? Oh, I've had about 17, I think. Right. <laughs> I de- yeah, I thought I was gay for a bit cause, because I was attracted to men and I thought, well, that's, you know, I've got to be, must mm-hmm. be gay. And so I, I did come out as gay at one point. It's all a bit blurry to me. I, I remember coming out as gay and then thinking like, oh, I'm gay now. And <laughs> sort of trying to, trying to yeah. sort of imagine, you know, play out a new life for myself. And then I realised, oh, but I'm now getting a lot of like girls wanting a gay best friend. And actually, I'd love to touch their boobies. And so, <laughs> so then uh, gradually I sort of, and I don't remember when I came out as bi. I think I came out to mum first, uh, probably 15, 16. This tells you everything you need to know. Mum's been nothing but supportive, but I was so upset and so nervous about telling her. So, you know, it wasn't something that's an easy, it was an easy thing. And then I told dad on, on my 18th birthday when I was pissed and he was so nonplussed by it. It was just very like, all right, whatever. Like, it, 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 I, having expected him to be like, what? I, mean, I wasn't expecting that because he wasn't that kind of guy. He isn't that kind of guy. Um, but um, there were no qualms from mum and dad. And yes, yeah, so then I went into university as a, as a bisexual and, and that was sort of how I roll. How was uni? Did you enjoy it? Yeah, I mean, same reasons as why I didn't like school. I just felt like all these lecturers, particularly I did drama and English. And I mean, the drama course, what a waste of time. I mean, I don't want to go too hard into Manchester University because I had a lovely time there. But the minute I found stand up, I was like, well, this can or the rest of all this can fuck right off. And I just felt like universities have arts degrees and some of them I'm sure are brilliant but a lot of the time it feels to me like they are there as a kind of cash cow to fund the more expensive scientific based courses and I I felt like I was um, not necessarily and and this isn't I'm not the only person in that year group or so that feels the same that just felt like a bit like nobody really gives a shit about us do they so we, we ended up making a lot of our own work and what's interesting about that is that so many of the people that I was at university with are very proactive in the way that they produce stuff that they're not really waiting for someone else to, to to start something they're all 
starting their own things and have started their own things and a, a lot of them are so successful with the things that they've started and I think that came from this sort of slightly lackluster course which didn't really wasn't really supported there was some amazing lecturers and I think I don't want to um, slag off everyone there but I definitely had a time at, at the university where I was just a bit like well this isn't it is it and 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 yet we still have to turn up and pretend that everyone's in charge and that these people deserve their authority and again I was like nah fuck these wankers I'm gonna go and do stand-up well I think that's um I think creating your own work and I, I was about to say in the creative world, but actually that's, I don't think that, I think it's with anything. Sort of creating your own stuff is so important, having your own products. Because I, I went to drama school and there's certainly a portion of us from my year at drama school who went out and did stuff. And my thing I, I later realised was that I really wanted to be funny. Mm. People would say to me, what kind of actress do you want to be? And I'd say like Victoria Wood. And it took me the whole of drama school to realise she was a stand-up. Yeah, yeah. Um, But I think that's so important, isn't it? It's like going out and creating your own work. And also when you create your own work, you create what you're willing to share and what you're willing to say. And it's your rules. It is. That's funny. Do you still want to act? Is that still on your sort of to do? It's something that I'd love to do at some point. If there was a project that I really wanted to do, I think that's the thing. I think stand-up gives me so much joy yeah in a way that I I think the one thing that I would miss and the reason that I love doing tour support is because it's so great or having someone on tour with me indeed yeah. you know it's so great having another person around that's creative yeah it's and having a moment on stage and just that moment where you cross over and the look in each other's eyes of like oh this is a fun one yeah you're gonna have a good time I've just yeah. had a really good time you're gonna have a really good time now that's the only thing that I miss about acting, sort of the camaraderie of it. Yes, I miss that as well. And, and doing the TV stuff has, has provided that in, in a lot of ways, having a kind of team around you and going out for team drinks afterwards and getting to know the characters involved. There's a lot a lot to be said about that, and, and I've enjoyed that a lot. But the flip side of that is working with other people means you have to <laughs> listen to other people. And some, yeah. often, particularly when you're working with such amazing teams that I've been fortunate to work with, you agree with them. And you go, oh, God, yeah, we should definitely do it like that. What was what was I thinking? But I really miss and I'm looking forward to whenever lockdown breaks of doing some more stand up where it's just me. And I just go, I think this is funny. I'm going to say it. And it's there's no committee that goes into like oh well we can't say that because it goes up before we need to check with the lawyers lawyers? oh god checking with the fucking lawyers oh joe license got your back it must be constantly checking with the lawyers i hate the lawyers (laughs) lawyers. i'm glad they exist on our side because they protect me and us the production team whatever but i was thinking about this the other day i was thinking imagine if you're like an amazon lawyer and imagine like you go to work and you're sort of just basically protecting this massive machine from being exposed for doing wrong things. And you go home and you go, oh, I, yeah, I stopped somebody reviewing. You walk in and go, Alexa, put the lights on. Yeah, yeah. I suppose that's, that's exactly what you do, isn't it? Yeah, you don't care. But I mean, it feels to me like um, such a waste of a life. Um, you know, if, if, you're, if you're smart. I heard you describe being a comedy critic as a waste of a life once. And yes. It made me laugh yeah, I agree with so that as well. So much. Yeah. It's just sort of pointless, isn't it? It's like, like... For anyone that's um, listening that's either from overseas or that hasn't had the pleasure of seeing your show yet, could you tell us what Joe Lysett's got your back 
is about. Yes, so to sort it's, of sum up how you like to. Yeah, it's um, it's a comedy consumer show basically. So we take on real issues that people have. They send them into. We've got an email address people send stuff into. So it'll be anything from someone got scammed online to somebody's delivery didn't turn up or all sorts of different things and we investigate and find some absolutely mad stuff and then we properly research it they're all like legit consumer researchers and producers that we have on the show but we approach it with a funny angle basically so we try and deliver the message to the ceo in a mad way or expose the company and i suppose the most sort of well-known thing that's come out of the series thus far is a thing that I did with Hugo Boss where Hugo Boss were sending cease and desist letters to small businesses. So uh, the company that we used was... um, one the company that we illustrated was this Boss Brewing in Swansea. It's just a little brewery in Swansea. And it cost them tens of thousands of pounds to have to go through the legal issues and rebrand. And nobody was confusing this beer with the Hugo Boss fashion brand. And so to expose them and to illustrate this issue, I changed my name via deed poll to Hugo Boss for a while um, because they clearly don't like people using their name uh, just to kind of take the take the piss basically and so we try and think of ideas like that which are a bit left field nobody else would do it and see what results we get the results are always really really funny Um, do you think this comes back to you being a bit of a rebel yeah big time because I don't respect companies I don't I think they are out for profit I think whenever they pretend that they are not then they're lying you know there's a lot of these companies that sort of do um you know we're going to donate 10% of the proceeds from the sales of this to whatever you're just trying to make your brand look better you're trying to improve how you look it's all lies all you care about is profit that's what a company exists for and I don't mind companies I think we've we have lots of wonderful things as a result of companies and people have jobs and whatever but when we're constantly being lied to that everyone's super friendly in this company like just uh, what I want is so much of it's bollocks it's all bollocks I want the truth I've made this thing I want to make some money from it because I think it's good or I've made this thing I think it's shit but I think you're going to like it or whatever I, I just want it sold to me in the kind of in the bare bones way and I suppose it's ultimately it's slightly anti-capitalist which is a lot of what motivates me I suppose and I'm not anti-capitalist but I'm anti sales people I suppose um and it's it, it all comes from that place really so um yeah I, I get cross about companies because I think they are um it, they're not true to what they actually are do you know what I I've realized and I, and I did know this about you but what I thought as I was researching you and whilst we've been having this conversation is that you constantly want to deal with honesty yes that's what you want from people yeah what is oh I can't remember the poet now is it Keats or Yates? Truth is beauty and beauty is truth. That is all you need to know and all there is to know or something. I really love that about you because I think going back to talking about sort of your sexuality or just talking about that bit in your most uh, recent show, the one I was talking about before, about talking about the terminologies within the community. Mm. What I think is brilliant is because of your sort of, you know, you're, because because you've done so much telly now, you know, you've been on Graham Norton, you've sat next to Nicole Kidman. It's very exciting. Yeah. But because of that, you get a very broad mainstream stand-up audience yes and I think it takes quite a lot of courage to be that honest because I think it'd be very easy for you to go I'm gay or I'm bi but I think taking the time to go I'm actually not this is how I feel this is me being really honest yeah I mean you say that but actually I don't think 
it would be easy for me. I don't think I, I'd feel like I was lying the whole time. And don't get me wrong, when I use the word truth, I don't mean that literally everything I say on stage is true. So much of it is embellished. So much of it mm-hmm. is names of people that I've merged with other people. I create characters in my shows and whatever that are not real people, but they are elements of four people, four fused, people together. fused together, which is just a device to make it easier rather than go, oh, then my friend Claire said this and then my friend Stephen <laughs> said this. Rather than that, just put them all into one person. You don't need to know the details. But the reason you like what those people say and when you start to people start to laugh and it starts to resonate is because it resonates with a more core truth i suppose in that like you recognize that ah people are like that and people talk in that way or people have those opinions and and that that's the sort of truth i'm getting at i think you laugh when it resonates with something within you and you go i recognize that and i hadn't seen it that way or i I hadn't thought of it that way and those are the sort of that's the sort of truth that i'm getting at and we all know that feeling when you've got like something to get off your chest and then when you say it you know you've fallen out with a friend or whatever and you talk about it openly it feels so good to say the truth it feels so nice to get it out there and it doesn't have to be nasty it doesn't have to be done in a horrible way the truth but um it's, i think this is sort of what i was getting at with uh, the therapist i suppose is that a lot of the time in my day-to-day life I don't speak the truth. I bury the truth in order to appease other people, essentially. And I think it feels really nice when you actually just allow it to flow freely through you. And have you, being sort of honest and being truthful and being sort of out in the public eye, have you, I know you said you don't get a lot of, um, you know, you don't get a lot of hate online, but when you first were sort of coming up through the comedy circuit, Mm. Did you sort of receive any homophobia or biphobia or, I guess, prejudice yeah. when you were on stage? Well, I, I started in Manchester and did mm-hmm. a lot of gigs in the surrounding areas and a lot of, like, shitty pubs. And they definitely... That's one thing I love about the North is they there's a truthfulness to them. I love... Um, Janice Connolly said to me once, she's a brilliant character comedian. Oh, really does funny. A, does an act called Barbara Nice, which is a beloved act, uh, particularly in Birmingham, because she lives in Birmingham, but um, around the country as well. And... Um, she was talking about kind of posh people and she just said, they don't laugh like us. And I thought that was so <laughs> lovely. That's exactly right. So it was like, there's a gritty truth about um, Northern people. And um, on the flip side of that is, you know, they're, if they're homophobic, they let you know. And um, I had a, I had one gig, which I stuck with me where this guy was very openly homophobic to me. And um, my response to that was to sit on his lap and uh, and just did the rest of the show, f- sat on his lap, basically, which, because everyone else in the room was not, and this is like some grotty pub in, like, Macclesfield or something like that. That's so brave, Joe. <laughs> I love it, though. Once I'm up there, I'm like, sod it, let's, let's have them. And I knew that there were enough people on my side, and his wife apologised to me afterwards, whatever. You know, I read him well, I think. Um, but I've had little bits like that in the past. But it's, uh, what I find is it's less homophobia. It's just sort of um, willful misunderstanding, really. So there are people who just, particularly with bisexuality and pansexuality, they just don't want to engage with it. They don't want to think about it. And so they sort of deliberately sort of try and get it wrong. And and that's that's the more pervasive thing that I experience rather than someone saying like, oh, you fuck it. You know, it's, it's less that. It's more the kind of institutionalized stuff and... Yeah, I was thinking about a lot of my friends have ended up as uh, in finance or law or whatever from, you know, went to a grammar school. Everyone's very well educated. And I just can't imagine being like an openly flamboyant 
LGBT member of the community and also working for Goldman Sachs or Ernst & Young. You know, I just can't imagine that those offices are, are filled with people that are open to that. It's all a lot of men in crisp shirts, isn't it? Yeah, I think we're very lucky that we have an industry where we're consistently allowed to celebrate exactly who we are. Yeah, and and that's and we forget, I think, that, or at least I forget, how rare that is and how my personality and my approach to things is celebrated in the industry I'm in. And if I was in most other industries, it would be suppressed. Going back to sort of receiving that willful misunderstanding, as you described it, on stage, you have always seen someone who is very comfortable with who they are and very positive and very open. And as you said, sort of, you know, sort of a people pleaser, not, and I don't mean that in a negative way at all, but you know, that way that all us comics are to a degree, Mm. probably less so now, but certainly when you started, did you carry any of that around with you? Were you, did it upset you? Did you take those feelings home with you or were you quite good at going, well, they're a prick, fuck them and not thinking about it again? I'm quite good, actually. When I when somebody's just being a bit of a dickhead, I am just, I'm quite good at going like, ah, well, in some ways I'm a bit defeatist because I know some a lot of people want to change the minds of people like that. I just think like, oh, how interesting that they think like that. I, I, I'm, I'm kind of torn about this because I do feel like we are in a in an extraordinary period of there's a lot of knobs coming out of the woodwork and mm-hmm. uh, you know very yeah. far right and, and far left as well I, I think just any sort of extreme views that are delivered in this a very aggressive way and this is right and this is wrong and there's yeah. no chance for nuance yeah. and there's no chance for conversation yeah and it's like well, how, how how was it decided that you were correct mm. like who, who made you the, the moral arbiter so I find that really um worrying because i think you know these things can roll on as we've seen in history but I do have a slight attitude of like, I don't agree with it. I think it's mad that you've said that or that you think that, but I can't even begin to imagine why you think that. I'd, I'd like to try because I'd like to understand where it comes from. And a lot of it comes from, I reckon, just saying things that you think you should say. I remember my granddad actually um, said before I ever came out that if he'd known that any of his kids were gay, he would have drowned them at birth, which was such a like, a shock to me and also such a kind of it's it's such a a histrionic way to kind of respond i'm drowning the gay baby like it's such a sort of over the top reaction but um, i mean it's almost camp it's camp it is a camp response (laughs) kind of high camp it is yeah i drowned the baby yeah yeah it is and then when i started to sort of emerge uh, my sexuality started to emerge he totally mellowed and clearly didn't mean that but he came from a generation of people that would have said things like that and he didn't really mean it he just it was a thing to say because that's what people said and so I I often think that like when people say mad shit like that it all just comes from fear and a false memory I suppose a false information that was given to you at some earlier point and I think the most important thing with with all of this stuff and and I've said this before on the podcast and indeed so have other guests I think a willingness to have a conversation with people that you don't see eye to eye with Mm. is actually how positive changes happen. God, and I love it. I absolutely love like speaking to people that and and really bedding down into why people think the way they think, whatever. That's like, I think my favorite potential job ever would be to just sort of hang around with a load of homophobes or. Um, I don't know, really like super religious people, whatever, because I'd love to like find a common ground because I know there is the, that there common is. ground. And I really love all of that. And I also think, because I've had a lot of listeners get in touch saying, oh, I, I don't speak to my family at the moment or I'm not out or I'm very worried about how they're going to react. And I think 
the thing is that often happens is that in time people can surprise you and people's opinions oh, can yeah, change yeah and actually that's where hope lives yeah, you know there it does just because you know your mum and dad aren't talking to you at the moment or your nan hasn't been able to accept it or you felt like you've had to move out that's really disappointing oh, and you might changes yeah 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 you and you might always be disappointed that that was the initial reaction but don't let that disappointment stop you from one day having a lovely relationship with that person yeah because there's there's always hope there is always hope yeah and there's also i'm often surprised by my mind's ability i i I think i'm sometimes guilty of agreeing with the last thing that i heard (laughs) you know like so (laughs) you know people say have you got any opinions on that i think well has anyone else got any opinions they want to share first then i can agree with them (laughs) yeah exactly so i I, you know i i often particularly with complicated issues i sort of feel my way through them and that one one thing that I find very useful is being friends with Jess Phillips, the MP, because oh, she yes. she is a wise owl. And if I'm not sure about something, I'll often WhatsApp her. Like if if some new kind of scandal has come out about somebody's opinion or something they've said or whatever, I'll what go to her. What do I think about this? Yeah, I'll be like Jess. What what is the correct thing to think here? And I've got actually I've got a few friends that I do that with. My friend Will, who I went to university with, who does PR, he's like so wise, and I always like ring him and say what is the correct thing to think about this and it's always so helpful to and often it's what I kind of thought in my subconscious and he just found the words to kind of pull it out but I'm often amazed at sometimes those moments where you go oh actually that was wrong the way I thought about that and being surprised by that go oh actually I I did wrong by these people because I had that thought process and actually I should change that and life's brilliant in that way but also, life is, as far as I'm aware, chaotic with very little kind of common thread. And we all kind and of have rhyme to rhyme or reason. There's no rhyme or reason. Like, what the fuck is coronavirus? Where's that come from? Nobody saw it coming. And life is just this mad mess of stuff going on. And it is our responsibility to just make the best of it. If it's going to happen, it's going to happen. And I think you just have to cling on to those like bright moments and know that, you know, nothing remains constant and there will be brighter moments. There'll be horrible moments coming. You know, it's all coming. It's like, it's, I, I find it sort of. Sort of reassuring. Yeah, I do. I find it reassuring. It's like, yeah, it's all coming and then you die. <laughs> that is it. Um, that, that's the, the long and the short of it. Um, now, Jay, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Now, I'm just going to ask you one more question. It's the question that I ask everybody. Oh, yeah. And it's if you could sort of pick up a telephone and ring the version of Joe that was sort of maybe first realising that he might be different to some of the other boys and girls in his class and that had that sort of knot in his stomach mm. and you could give him a, a little bit of advice, what would you say? Um, I mean, it's it's a sort of cliche, really, and it, and it fits with what um, I was just saying, that at any point in your life, you do put a lot of eggs in certain baskets, and almost always those baskets are nowhere near as big or as important as... I'm not sure how long I can keep the basket metaphor going. No, um, I like it. Stick with it. Uh, they're not as uh, they're not as important. They're not as big a deal. And in a year, five years, ten years, those baskets will almost seem ridiculous. And there's not necessarily anything wrong with that because there's certain points in life when you know you really want to be focused in and you want your whole world to be about. Uh, I mean, for me, it's often the work, but like it could be your partner or your child, or whatever you know. 
at some point changing a baby's nappy will seem ridiculous and not that big a deal because that baby is now a human wiping its own ass but at that point it's so important that you focus in on that but always have an eye on the fact that at some point this won't matter and it will be irrelevant and it will have it will have gone away and i think when i was growing up and felt not me and whatever and felt that there were certain characters that were um kind of nasty towards me or whatever or that i put a lot of respect into them a lot of onus on them those characters will will have almost zero input in your life and have that you won't even think of them they won't have any effect and i think if there's anyone pissing you off right now um or anyone twisting your melon remember that um in the not too distant future they will almost definitely not play a part in your life perfect way to end the conversation thank you so much joe thank you susie well that was today's interview with the wonderful joe lycett i love him so much he's such a great guy and a brilliant friend and if you haven't seen his tv shows or if you haven't seen him do stand-up live i can't recommend it enough he's so brilliant so brilliant well That brings us to the end of the first series of Out With Susie Ruffle. Thank you so much for coming along for the ride. I've really loved doing it. I've really loved hearing from you all. As I mentioned on episode one, I was really unsure about putting out a podcast right at the beginning of this strange time when we're not seeing our friends and family and when the world seems um, a bit scary. But I'm really pleased that I did. I'm really pleased that so many of you enjoyed it. If you've got any recommendations for who I should get on the show, tweet at me, give me an email. Um, I'll do my best and I can't wait to share more stories with you. I hope wherever you are um, and whoever you are, you're feeling well and I'll chat to you next series. Bye. Bye.